love you, brother. Hello, everyone. It's happening. I'm standing right here. This is real. You never know. You might be standing here someday. Craziness. It's very surreal. This is Dr. Anderson's spot, if you didn't know that. He sort of occupies this space right here. I used to occupy that space up there. <laughs> here I am today. Crazy. I'd like to open with a scripture and a word of prayer and then talk for a little while. From Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you, and we entrust to you the transformation of our hearts and the renewing of our minds. We pray that you would work inside of us today, that you would challenge us, and that when we leave here, we'd be more like you than we've ever been. We thank you for your presence in this room. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank Dr. Graham for asking me to share today. Kind of thought he was kidding. He wasn't. Uh, I've only been around here uh, as a teacher since last year. This is my fourth semester that we're starting. So I started full-time last fall. And I was here as a student from 1997 to 2002. I recognize that that dates me. I've already done that in all of my classes. This morning someone said, I was two. And um, I'm still sort, of, still sort of mad at that person. But some of you, some of you weren't even born then. I'm kind of mad at you too, but I brought with me just one picture that I wanted to show from back when I was here, um, just to show that the corral sort of looks the same. Um, but but that's, yeah, the hairstyles may have changed just a tad. Uh, that's me way over there, and if you notice right on the row on top of me there, that's Chris Wolfley, ladies and gentlemen, right there. And I didn't want to take this opportunity to speak without just giving a shout-out to Chris Wolfley, who's like the coolest guy around. Yeah. We, we sang together. We were roommates together when I was here at North Central. And uh, we actually lived together in Menzing Hall, where now I teach. And that is also surreal and strange. Well, I thought I would start. A lot of times, if someone comes up to speak and they've never really communicated in this way before. They give a little bit of information about themselves, and I thought I would do just that. Larry kind of gave an overarching recap, but I was here, like I said, I graduated in, 19, er, in uh, 2002. Three weeks later, I was married. Now, that might sound like we rushed things, but in fact, we'd been together since we were 14 and 16 years old. I also brought photographic evidence of that, if we could go to the next picture. There we are. <laughs> there it is. So, that's it. <laughs> My wife is shaking her head at me. She's here. Everybody wave to Justine. Say, hi, Justine. Yeah, there's my wife right there. Thanks for coming. Okay, you can take that one down. Um, 
So that's what I looked like as a freshman here. Um, well, maybe I was a junior in high school there, so I guess I had another year or so to get super mature before I came here as a student. Um, but we just dated for a quick six and a half years, and then we decided to go ahead and tie the knot. So sometimes when you know, you know. Um, <laughs> four, and a, four and a half of those years, four and a half years of long-distance dating. Now, if, if you think that's impressive, it sort of is. However, there was really no mystery involved. It wasn't mysterious. We decided we wanted to be together, and so then we stayed together. Let that be a word of encouragement to all of you out there. It's not magic. It's just good decision-making a lot of the time. And, you know, I came here, and there was, I remember specifically another guy on my floor, uh, 4 East as a freshman, and I remember he and I both had girlfriends from back home. And he would come to me, you know, oh, isn't it so hard just to be away? And don't you just, like, want to flirt all the time? And I'm like, I don't, I'm, I'm good, you know, like, we're, we're okay. I'm sort of doing school now. And, um, so his relationship lasted until October. It gets better. Then he found an, a new person of interest, and he and this other freshman started dating. And then in December, we took Christmas break, came back in January, and he wasn't in his room anymore. And I said, hey, you know, I won't name him just in case, but where is so-and-so? Oh, he got married over Christmas break. <laughs> but like I said, when you know, you know, right? So just got to go with it. That's not for recommendation, but, and sadly, I did not keep up with him. I can't give you an update. Don't know how it worked out. Okay, so 2002, at, at long last, Justine and I got married after six and a half years, and we decided that the best thing for us to do was to live in the Twin Cities so that I could pursue a career as a rock star. Seemed like it made perfect sense to me. After about six months of band practice and watching game shows and stuff, I, we decided I should get a job. And so I did, and then I worked odd jobs around the Twin Cities for about a year. Stayed connected at North Central, still had friends who were here, and um, I used to sing Southern Gospel music in a group actually with Forrest Perotti's dad. I don't know if Forrest <laughs> is here today, but uh, his, his dad and I sang lots of Southern Gospel music for people that were older than us. And... That sort of fell apart, and the band I was in was full of incredible musicians who all wanted to be in charge, and as it worked out, we weren't all able to be in charge. So that stopped, and then Justine and I decided that we would uh, look for a different kind of job that maybe had a little bit more to do with what I had studied and what we were passionate about. And so we took a job at Calvary Assembly of God in Orlando, Florida in 2004, uh, I also brought a picture from that experience that I wanted to throw up. Now, this isn't the kind of picture you would expect. Um, we had a caricature artist in our ministry there. who. So this is me right here rocking out in the middle, um, looking pretty good. That's my two-year-old son on drums because he was a pretty rocking drummer back then. And my wife, Justine, and then you'll notice Gina playing keys right there. My sister, she's here today. Hey, Gina, good to see you. Um, and that's, that's my band. The reason it looks like flames are coming out of uh, Ruben's guitar is because it almost happened that way, and he would just shred even during prayer times and stuff. It was, he, 
He toured with NSYNC for five years, played all the stadiums. I tore tickets as a, a temp at the Metrodome that was here when NSYNC came through, and I always used to make fun of him that now he was in my band after he you know, played. But yeah, it was a great time that we had. And this is pretty much the, the glamorized version of rock and roll that we enjoyed at that church and uh, made a lot of great relationships there, but felt like after about five and a half years of living in uh, sunny, warm, perfect Orlando that we would, we would be better suited to move back here where this happens. Um, but we're, we're glad to, we were glad to move back. We were glad to be closer to family and back connected, uh, even with North Central. And I connected with Larry right away when we came back and um, got to participate in Partners for Progress and just kind of connected with North Central. And we've been at uh, the church there in Princeton. So I actually live 50 miles north of here in a very small town called Princeton. I was able to do... Um, all those years here at North Central, a year and a half in the Twin Cities, and managed to never hear of Princeton, Minnesota, and then moved there from Orlando. So I don't know if any other family has ever in the history of the world moved from Orlando, Florida to Princeton, Minnesota, but we did it. And, uh, and the family that we have now has grown. Justine and I have three children, and they are right here. And I show that picture for a couple reasons. Number one, I want you to see my family. Number two, if you didn't like me yet, it's really hard not to like the parent of these children because they're absolutely perfect in every way. In the middle is uh, our oldest. His name is also Vinny. Uh, his full name is Vincent Lawrence Sarletti II, which is super professional. And the two became his nickname, and we call him Deuce. So if you see him around here, you'll see him. So it just stuck, and he's Deuce, and that's what we call him. Uh, to his right is my daughter Sophie, who is in charge of me, and she is beautiful, and she will be eight next week. Uh, and then over here with the dimple is Santino, and he is something. Uh, he, he prefers to be called Bubba, so if you see him, you can just call him Bubba. Okay, so enough of all that fun. Let's get down to business, shall we? Shortly before Santino was born, I felt like God was directing me back to school again, which when I graduated from here, I did not have on my radar to continue my education. I didn't self-identify as an academic person or a scholar of any kind. I learned what I wanted to learn, and I got out and got the kind of job I wanted to get and thought that was that. But just felt the Lord really tugging me back into uh, a structured learning environment where I could really be challenged and um, really start to, to read and to just exercise my brain in a way that it had kind of been taking a break for a while, just singing songs. And um, I recognize now that leading worship and singing songs in church isn't just singing songs, but um, I went through a time when it really was a lot about that. And this this journey that I began in 2011 has really directed and transformed even further the way that I think about that. And my, ma my mind began to just really kind of explode and paradigms were challenged and I began to recognize how incomplete the experiences that I was offering to the people that I was leading, how incomplete those were. And it occurred to me that there was more information and more to learn than I could ever possibly learn. For some people, that's demotivating. That, that makes you want to try less. Well, we can't ever get it all, so why bother? I'm sort of built the other way where I feel like, well, if I can't learn at all, that means I could potentially keep learning the rest of my life, which I guess that makes sense that I 
a teacher now because we all apparently have to think that way. Uh, and we're trying to get you to think that way. So hopefully it rubs off while you're here. But I, I recognize that this pursuit of the Lord and worship and studying what worship is and what's really happening when the gathered community comes together is something that I could spend the rest of my life doing. And I'm excited to have been on that journey now for about six years. Uh, as Larry said, I'm almost done. I have just less than three months to finish my doctoral thesis. So like in the next few months, if I seem stressed, it, it's because I really am. So just, just know that. Like I'm not a rude person. If I say something that seems short, it's probably because my brain is just there. So I'm, I'm trying my best to juggle it all together and believing that God's got this all together. But when Dr. Graham asked me to speak and I, I thought of just the gravity of this spot, like I mentioned, I mean, I remember sitting up there in the balcony week after week being challenged by Dr. Anderson, being challenged by the worship in this place and being transformed. And to think that I could even have just a few minutes of your time to contribute to that process in your life this morning is very humbling for me. And yet I, I feel inclined then to think, okay, well, I better come up with something like real profound because a lot of incredible speakers occupy this space. And even in the last year and a half that I've been here, I've sat over now here, I got a new spot, it's sort of in this area, and I sit over there and I'm still challenged. I'm challenged to think differently, I'm challenged to think with more uh, breadth and just to, to think deeply about things. And I, I, I think to myself, well, I wanna contribute to that. And yet what I felt the Lord leading me to share with you this morning is very, very simple. And I hope that's okay. If I was going to give the, the message a title, which I guess I have, it would be not so deep and wide. And really, I just want to talk to you about two simple things that I've picked up in the last few years that have really impacted the way that I approach ministry and life. One of them has to do with depth, and one of them has to do with width. And I considered that in the past, maybe I hadn't been so deep and wide, so that's how I got there. The first one is going to seem really, really obvious, almost painfully obvious, but you could maybe write it down or remember it because it's pretty simple, and it's this. It matters what we sing. Now, if you talk to me about worship for any length of time, you'll recognize that I know that singing and worship are not synonymous terms. Okay, even yesterday when we had that amazing time of worship for chapel and Jeff was up here talking and talking about worship and how it's so much more than music, I want you to know that we believe that here and we know that it's not confined, like singing a few songs is not the definition of worship. Okay, also there's this, we talk about a lifestyle of worship and certainly the entire story that's contained in this wonderful book is leading us to a life that reflects worship all the time. So we have to consider that. But from an academic perspective and a scholarly perspective, if you were to study worship, if you were to look at what scholars write about worship, a lot of times what they're referring to is the gathered community together. So what happens on Sunday mornings or what happens on a day like today when we gather as believers in this place, everything that takes place would be con considered to be taking place in the context of worship. So somewhere in between that idea of worship where it's just the songs we sing and the realization that all of life is an attempt to glorify God in the way that we live and worship is this academic understanding that what Christian worship is is when we all gather together as a community, what we do together is, is worship. So when I think about worship in that way, I recognize that the speaking, the offering, when we pray together, all of those things are contextualized in worship. 
And yet, in that bigger understanding of corporate worship, singing is still a part of it. And I teach in the College of Fine Arts, and I lead musical worship at my church on a regular basis, and have been doing that now for 13 or so years. And so I think a lot about the music, even though I know that's not the only thing. So I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page with that. But I want you to know that it really matters what we sing. There's an old quote that's often attributed to Plato, although the origins are disputed. It goes like this. It says, let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes the laws. So just think about that for a minute. There's a theologian that came along years later. His name is R.W. Dale, and he modified the quote and said it this way. Let me write the hymns of a church, and I care not who writes the theology. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that good theology and hymns or songs are at odds with each other or that they were intended to be at odds with each other. But sometimes we hear amazingly deep theological teaching from this area, and then from this area, maybe not as much. I want to illustrate the power of music here briefly. I'm going to sing a jingle, and I'm going to see if you know which one it is. What if I sang, ba-da-ba-ba-ba? Yeah, right. Are you really? Uh, there's another jingle that uh, Peyton Manning has helped to make famous. Dum, 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 dum. Used to be nationwide is on your side. Now I just think of chicken Parmesan sandwiches whenever I hear that. Um, my kids really love, we are farmers. Right? It's powerful. My, my favorite jingle, and I don't, I don't do a lot of shopping at this place, but I love, it can only be Jared, right? Like, I love that. I love that one. It gets stuck in my head. I just want to sing it all the time. And, you know, Deuce, my oldest, he's nine. He's never bought any jewelry before. But we were walking through the mall, and there was this jewelry store, and he said, hey, Dad, every kiss begins over there. <laughs> like, well... Certainly, he's not speaking from experience. He's only heard the song. When a company wants you to remember their product, maybe it's a piece of jewelry, maybe it's a Big Mac, one way that they do that is by writing a catchy tune or hiring some fancy jingle writer to write a fancy tune that will get lodged in your brain forever and ever. And it, those songs that I just sang, some of you smell French fries right now. But they'll be in there. They're in there. They're just there. They're, they belong to this catalog of songs that you don't even know you know. And they're stuck. You can't even help it. It doesn't only happen with products and commercials. I think of uh, when I hear, we will rock you, I feel like I'm at a sporting event. If I hear, uh, there, there's so many songs, like I'll just blurt them out. I'll just start singing a, a hook of some kind and then someone else joins right back in, just like we just did. When we want to teach our children something, like say the ABCs. Now we could just teach our kids the ABCs to memorize them. A, B, C, then you've got D and E. And we go through the whole list, right? F, G, you know it. Okay, but we don't do it that way. We do it with a song, right? We teach them the song, A, B, C, D, and we sing it. Now, how many of you know the ABC song? All right, we're going to do a, an illustration here. How many of you know Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? How many of you have connected those dots before? 
right? Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to split the room in half, and I need full participation. If you are on this side, you're going to sing the ABCs with me, okay? And if you are on this side, you're going to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I'm going to do a mashup right now. You ready? We're actually going to do it at the exact same time, all right? So let's see. We're going to start right here. A, so you guys are on A, Twinkle. Okay, are you ready? All right, are you ready? Here we go. One, two, we sing together. A, B, C, D, little star. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, R. Q, R, S, world so high. Sing it out. Now I know my ABCs. Now I wonder what you are. Great job, everybody. Thank you. Yes. Beautiful. I bet you've never done that before. Music is a powerful thing. It really is. Can we, if we take it just a little bit more of a serious direction for, for a moment, if you would sing with me, no words on the screen, if we could just sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Music can teach you the ABCs. It can teach you a theology of salvation and you don't even know it. If you're going into full-time music ministry like the students I teach on a regular daily basis, understanding this is of the utmost importance because you have within your realm of responsibilities this job to put into the mouths of God's people the words that they will use to worship him. If you're going into another form of vocational ministry, you have potentially within your influence, depending on where you are in the church, the ability to speak into this, maybe even set the course for a church as it relates to these things. For all of us, as participants in Christian worship, we have a responsibility to actually participate and to take seriously what's taking place when we gather together as a worshiping community and not to take for granted that music is some preliminary to some other thing but that we're actually learning and teaching whether we recognize it or not. So the first thing that I want you to walk away with this morning is that it matters what we sing. That's the part about being deep. So the part about being wide. A lot is said and discussed about worship styles, and there's really no biblical prescription for stylistic preferences or nuances. But I want to suggest to you that it does matter how we sing what we sing. 
but maybe not for the same reasons that churches have strategized over the years uh, to use style as a tool for evangelism, to relate to people where they are, that kind of thing, in order to draw them in. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Take that however you want to take that. But I believe that it's important for us to take note of the way we do what we do and how we sing these songs and how we communicate in worship because God loves diversity. Now, how do we know that God loves diversity? It's because he loves people, and people are diverse. How else do we know that God loves diversity but that he showed us in the book of Acts, and I have a scripture that I'm going to put up there, Acts chapter 2. It's a, it's a passage, six verses that we're very familiar with around here. I'd like to read this morning. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, it's coming, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. It occurred to me that the miracle could have gone a different way. God could have chosen to miraculously change the ears of the people who were visiting to understand the word in whatever language it was being spoken. He could have miraculously made everyone understand Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek or any language he wanted. He could have just had them learn that one language and then take that back to where they came from. But instead, each cultural representation was validated. Every language that ent- every person who understood a language who entered that room and heard the good news heard it in their own tongue. And they brought it back to where they came from so that they could share with their people that God loves you right where you are. He wants to speak to you not only in terms that he understands, but in terms that you understand. How do we know that God loves diversity? Because he is the embodiment of unity and diversity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The image of the diverse triune God resides in each and every person that's ever been created. And each person is as valuable as the next person. The difference between people, differences between us shouldn't be downplayed or overlooked, but enjoyed and celebrated. And sadly, we've done, a lot of times, we've mistaken uniformity for unity. And we've implied that assimilation is the best way to become unified that we need to become just the same as each other in order to be united. But God didn't create all people the same. He didn't create all cultures the same. He didn't create all languages the same. Now, why is this important as it relates to worship? And this is the question. I really felt like these were the two things that I wanted to share with you today. And trying to reduce like six years of book reading and projects and thinking and conversations into like 25 minutes of moderately profound truth that will hopefully be remembered the next day is a difficult task. But this relates to worship because we need to 
make sure that where we are worshiping is a representation of the people who are worshiping. That we need to worship diversely, not for the sake of meeting some quota, but because the image of God is best reflected when all of us are allowed to be us. God has created you with a very particular personality, with a very particular cultural context that is unlike anyone else in the room. And you ought to be able to respond to the Lord with that and not with something that someone else told you you have to use in order to respond. When my kids get a gift, at Christmas time we had lots of screaming. There was lots of excitement over the gifts that were given. Now, I didn't have my oldest open his gift and react and then say to my second, okay, now when you get excited about your gift, make sure that you dance like he did. Right? As a father, when I give my kids gifts, I want them to respond like they would respond. God also uses diversity in our own language to explain himself to us. Throughout the entire word of God, you can find it. God is the creator. He's the king. He's our rock, our salvation. It's not just one word that can encompass all of that. He's got to use a diverse set of words to explain himself to us so that we can have even just the littlest glimpse of who he is. Jesus is the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the life. He's the vine and the gate, the good shepherd, the prince of peace. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, our counselor, the breath of life, the wind that blew at Pentecost and an all-consuming fire. God cannot be explained in a word, and his image cannot be represented through one style or expression of worship. I want to encourage you, no matter what your capacity is, wherever you worship, to find a way to worship God in a way that reflects the people who are around you when you're doing it. Listen to the people around you and be honest in the expression that you give. Don't watch somebody else and think, well, I better do it that way. Be honest with the Lord. Be yourself with the Lord and express that to him and allow his image that's already in you to come out as you give him honor and glory. I was talking about this in one of my classes last semester and the idea that for, for styles of worship, we, don't, we shouldn't be so concerned with implanting something from the outside into a local context, but to look around and see who's there and then pull style up from the ground. And one of the students said, I understand, but I don't like it. I said, well, why don't you like it? And she said, well, it just doesn't seem realistic. It just doesn't seem like it's actually going to work. Like people are really set in their ways. And then I read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's going to work. So we have a choice now to be a part of making it happen. God has entrusted us with the responsibility, some of us, to lead it, 
and all of us to participate in it. So I know I'm out of time. I've got like a two-minute song I want to close with. If you could just lend me two minutes of your time, I'll give it back to you some other time. We can... It really matters what we sing. And it matters that when we sing it, it represents all the people who are participating. Now, I've been attempting to write music for a long time, and over the last few years, uh, my trajectory in music composition has changed, and I've been very adamant about writing songs that reflect well the Scripture. It's so important to even sing the Word of God. And you can't go wrong with those lyrics. I mean, who's going to argue with you, right? You might be a fantastic poet. Someone's going to be offended by your poetry, but if you sing the Psalms, I mean, come on. It's like the oldest hymn book we've got. But there's a passage that really struck me in John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist says of Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That verse has been set to music innumerable times. Added to it other phrases like, Grant us peace. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. If you would join me in this prayer, you can close your eyes, you can sing along if you pick up the tune, but I would like to sing that verse as a prayer over our community, over our nation, over all of us as the worshiping people of God, charged with the responsibility of participating and living out this worship on a daily basis. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us have mercy on us we pray Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Grant us peace, grant us peace, we pray. On you's day, on you's day, quit Peccata mundi, on you's day, on you's day, 
tollis peccata mundi miserere nobi dona nobis pace grant us peace have mercy on us we pray well, lord i pray that as we go from here that you would allow us to be light in a dark world salt in a tasteless land that we would take seriously the responsibilities that we have to live in a way that reflects your image and to inspire others to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.